Uh, it is Father's Day, and, and we don't have to do a message to match the occasion, but certainly seems like an appropriate time to allow the Apostle Paul to give our fathers a fresh reminder of their priorities in the home. And we're going to begin this morning by asking ourselves this question, how does a man know if he's a good father? You know, how do you measure success as a father? And for some, certainly in the, in the world, it might just be measured in time, as in you're a good father if you're available for your family. You're around your family. You're not a needless workaholic. You're not out of the house pursuing your own interests, detached. No, your, your calendar is full of things that you're doing with your wife and with your children. You never miss the ball game. You never miss the special occasion. You're a family man. For others, being a good father might be equated with a genuine interest in his children's lives. This shows up in helping them out every way that he can, affectionately coming alongside them as their closest friend. He helps them with their homework. He tucks them in at night. He reads them a bedtime story. He's a great listener. He can draw them out and help relieve their burdens and their discouragement. They always feel better. Uh, when dad is around and after interacting with him. For others, faithful fatherhood might be measured in encouraging children down a path of achieving noble goals in this life. In other words, dad helps them to grow up to become good, respectful, responsible citizens who are a benefit to society. He, he works so hard so they can go to college, they can get that degree, and he promotes the development and the pursuit of excellence in extracurricular activities, academically, athletically, like a coach who gets the very best of the athletes that are on his team, this dad gets the very best out of the giftedness of his children. Well, for others, faithful fatherhood might be measured in providing a kind of life, a desired level of economic security and prosperity for his family. Providing his wife and children with a nice home and a nice neighborhood, annual vacations, plenty of money in the bank, college tuition set aside, stored up, a sizable inheritance awaiting each child upon death. And these are a few ways that we might be inclined to measure fatherhood, certainly in the culture. Those would be some ideas associated with it. But we should be quick to note that in, in these examples, there are many things that are good. Uh, even noble. In fact, many of the things we mentioned overlap with the application of principles that apply to biblical fatherhood. But at the same time, none of those things are the essence of it. None of those things are any indication that a father has fulfilled what God has called him to do in the home. Relatively speaking, all the things that we just mentioned are easy compared to what fathers are called to do in the home. Uh, easy, not in the sense they don't require hard work, they don't require being intentional, they don't require sacrifice, but easy in this sense. They're all natural. They're all natural. There's nothing uniquely Christian about any of them. There's nothing in those things that requires a, the Spirit of God at work in a father. So we're going to turn our attention to a passage in Ephesians 6 verse 4 this morning, as Paul has the opportunity to speak directly to the fathers in the church, he, he has the opportunity to give fathers God's priorities for them. As if to say, no matter what else you do for your family, no matter what else you accomplish, if you fail in these areas, you haven't been obedient. You haven't been what God calls you to as a father. So notice Ephesians 6, verse 4. A father's do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let's consider first the context in which these verses appear. In fact, verse 4 begins with the word and in the original. Some of your versions don't translate that word, but it's important to note that because it indicates a close connection with what has preceded it. Notice, let's back up to chapter 6, verse 1. Children... Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. So this section actually begins with Paul addressing the children 
and reminding them that you're under parental authority. Not only your actions, you're to obey your parents, that's both mom and dad, but also your attitude, your demeanor, you're to honor father and mother. So these are the priorities for children in the home. And we can recognize the potential difficulty children face when it comes to living out a passage like this. One, they face the common enemy that we all face, both child and adult, the human heart, which is self-willed by nature. The human heart resists authority. It wants self-autonomy. That's inherent in the human heart. And so children are already going to find resistance. They're already going to be vulnerable to not obeying this passage. But secondly, it's also a very difficult command for children because the ones whom they're called to obey and honor, their parents, are themselves sinners, fallen and fallible on their best day, which means that children are called to obey and submit to an authority that won't always make sense, it won't always be what is best, and it won't always be easy due to the way that authority is exercised. In fact, that's true of submitting to any human authority. Every person here, a child, adult, male, female, you're called to a life of submission in various contexts. That is a universal experience for every human being. One example that all of us are called to is to submit and honor the governing authorities. And yet in recent years, we have experienced to a heightened degree what it's like to submit to an authority that doesn't make sense to us. It's not what we perceive to be best and certainly has not been easy due to the abuse of that authority. Many governing authorities in recent years have made it that much more difficult for citizens to have this very attitude, this attitude of submission and obedience to their governance. Why? What's made it so difficult? Well, inconsistent standards. It's right this day. It's wrong the next day. Inconsistent messages. One government official saying this, the other one saying that. We've seen blatant hypocrisy. Do as I say, not as I do. We've seen the promotion and protection of those practicing evil and the persecution of those practicing righteousness. And so as citizens, we've been given a lot of reasons to cultivate a mistrust and an animosity toward our governing officials. They have made submission to their authority that much harder than it should be because they're not operating per the design that we see in Romans 13. And what is the result of this? Well, the average American citizen is exasperated. The attitude of the average American citizen toward the governing authorities is one of frustration. You could say that we have been provoked by the governing authorities to anger and resentment of that very authority. It's not justified, our unbelief, our disobedience, but it's a contributing factor to it. Well, that's what the Apostle Paul wants to make sure doesn't happen in family life. And so chapter 6 begins with this charge to children to obey and honor, and then Paul immediately follows that with a charge to the fathers. And the connection between these two verses is this. Don't abuse your parental authority. Don't frustrate those under your leadership and make it that much harder for them to come under it than it already is. Fathers have a God-given authority to exercise in the family, and Paul's going to show us here, here's how you exercise that in a righteous way. He's setting the tone of a father's authority. He's setting the limits of a father's authority in this passage. And so in verse 4, we're going to look at two mandates on fathers to ensure they faithfully exercise their God-given authority in the home. Two mandates on fathers to ensure they faithfully exercise their God-given authority in the home. And the text outlines itself in a pretty clear way. There's a negative command, what not to do, followed by a positive command. Here's what to do. And so we're going to see a harmful practice to be avoided, followed by a holy purpose to be pursued. Let's look at the beginning of verse 4 and see the harmful practice to be avoided. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. 
Paul narrows in and targets fathers. Why? They're the head of the family. They bear the ultimate responsibility for the physical and spiritual good of the family. But as we just saw in verses 1 to 3, mothers are obviously involved as well. Looking back at verse 1, children are to obey parents, plural. Verse 2, children are to honor father and mother. So mom shares in this responsibility and this influence and authority as well. This means that it's not dad's sole responsibility, but it is his ultimate responsibility. He bears the burden of answering to God for the state of his home. And it's interesting here that Paul highlights provoking children to anger. Out of all the potential things he could have said about the impact that a dad's leadership has on his children, in other words, he didn't say, don't provoke your kids to fear, anxiety, discontentment, jealousy, envy, complaining. Why narrow in on anger? Well, first, as one author said, anger is the cannibal emotion. It eats all the others till none is left. We could say anger is the dominant emotion. Another way we could understand it, anger is the gateway to many other sins. It makes one vulnerable to all kinds of ungodliness. In fact, look over at Ephesians 4.27, Paul connects anger with giving the devil an opportunity when you don't deal with anger. It makes you vulnerable to temptation. It, it places you in the realm of temptation. So that's one reason why anger would be highlighted here. But I think another reason that Paul narrows in on anger is because there's a close connection between anger and authority. Anger is the most common ungodly response to authority. When self-will meets authority, the most common response is anger. And as we talk about this, you can appreciate that there's a, a tension that comes out here with this passage. Because even in the godliest home, with the most godly parents, children are going to get angry at times. And Paul is not implying here that every time a child is in this state, this angry state, well, there's, there's an automatic link. There's a problem in mom or dad's leadership. After all, parents have to exercise authority, discipline, establish and enforce standards. Inevitably, these things are going to be met with resistance and hostility in children. So this can't be referring to any and all kinds of anger in children. Rather, Paul's reminding fathers here, there is a particular kind of anger that your leadership can produce in your children, and you can avoid it. In fact, you're commanded to avoid it. What kind of anger is this? Well, that phrase, provoke to anger, it's one word, and it's the idea of stimulating or exciting one unto this state, to this angry state. Particularly, it's an anger that leads to resentment. This is referring to when a father's leadership serves as a catalyst, a stimulation unto a perpetual state of frustration, discouragement, hopelessness in his children. Now granted, we know that no human being can cause another human being to sin. When one sins, when, when someone has an ungodly response to a person or a circumstance in life, they can never truthfully say the ultimate cause of that is the circumstance or that person. No, no one can say that. James 1.14 is clear. When we're tempted, we're carried away and enticed by our own lust, our own desire. So we are not the ultimate cause of someone else's sin, but what, is, what principle is Paul highlighting here then? We can be a, signif a significant contributing factor in one another's vulnerability to sin. In the same way that we can provoke or stimulate one another to love and good deeds, Hebrews 10.24, we can provoke or stimulate one another to frustrated hopelessness in the lives of our children. Just to illustrate this principle, back to the example we mentioned earlier with the governing authorities, especially at the heart of the COVID crisis a few years ago, many people were full of fear, an unsubmissive spirit, anger, and frustration at the governing officials. And to be sure, anyone responding like that was culpable for those responses. But at the same time, the way that the governing officials were exercising their authority was a provocation a stimulation unto those 
responses. And that's the idea here. It is where dad's influence is a significant contributing factor to his, chi- his children's state of frustrated hopelessness. That's, that's how I would practically define that word, provoking to anger. The anger is a frustrated hopelessness. As one author put it, a long-term frustration and anger that makes the child's soul shrivel into a small, hard shell that only has two feelings, anger and emptiness. The parallel passage you can just jot down by way of reference, Colossians 3.21, it's worth highlighting. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Notice both aspects are there. Don't exasperate, don't frustrate your children so they won't lose heart, discouragement. So frustrated hopelessness, frustrated discouragement. Now, what does that look like in a child? We're going to look in a moment at how dad does that. But what does it look like in a child? What would be the symptoms, the manifestations of a child who's been provoked to anger over the long haul? Well, none of these things automatically prove a child is in this state. But here would be some common manifestations that could indicate a child's in that state. Just a discouraged disposition, a hopeless disposition. They're never encouraged about anything in life. You might even refer to them as they're depressed. Indifference to everything in life. No excitement, no passion about anything. They're just numb. And the only display of any kind of emotion is anger. Other than that, they're just a shell of their previous selves. Clamming up, not opening up to anyone, especially dad could be a sign. This causes them to seek a new family outside of the home. Who's that? Their peer group. Why? Because they feel accepted and understood, and they don't feel that way in the home. Another symptom, habitually responding with hostility to mom and dad's authority. So as the child continues to grow up, instead of becoming softer and having respect and submission toward that authority, they, they become more and more hostile, more and more hardened, against mom and dad's authority. And then this eventually leads in the teenage years to wanting desperately to leave the home. Paul Tripp puts it this way. Few teenagers leave because of the rules. No, they leave because of the relationship. They leave, excuse me, because the relationship with their parents has gotten so bad, so angry, so confrontational, so adversarial, they can't stand to live under the same roof with them. Now, please keep in mind that clarifier. None of these things necessarily prove a fault in dad's leadership. These, these things can happen in, a, in, a, in children from very godly homes, but oftentimes these can be indications that the children have been provoked to anger. Now, no Christian parent here this morning would do this on purpose. No one would do this intentionally. No Christian father sets out every day and says, my goal is to lead my home and my children into this state of frustrated hopelessness. That's my goal as as a parent. There's no one here with, with that goal. And yet the fact that Paul commands this of fathers and highlights it as a particular vulnerability we're going to have in our leadership, that indicates what? This is the direction we're naturally going to go if we're not on top of it. This is the result we will naturally produce in our children, even if we are good fathers, according to the standards of the world. And so I want to take several minutes here. Really, this is going to be the bulk of the message, even though we will get to the second half of verse 4 later. But really, the bulk of the message here is going to be considering some of the ways that we can unintentionally provoke our children to anger. How can we lead in such a way with the result that they're in this state, this long-term state of frustrated hopelessness? Well, first would be the most obvious, and that is the angry dad. The angry dad. Modeling the very ungodly characteristic that he is called to avoid producing in his children. 
There are a couple of terms in the New Testament to describe anger. One of them describes the explosive, boiling over, the, the, the yelling outburst anger, the violent rage of anger. Yelling, screaming, slamming things around, getting violent, blowing up, the passionate rage which boils up suddenly. Well, that's the more obvious and destructive form of anger in the home. The other anger that we might give a free pass on, but, it, but it's equally sinful, is the, the slow burn. You can think of it as internal anger that just, it just escapes the individual, comes out in more subtle forms, moodiness, frustration, sighing, irritability, impatience. You know, irritability, we, we sometimes give a free pass because, hey, at least we're not throwing something across the room and yelling and screaming, but irritability is the fruit of the same root. It's internal anger that doesn't come out in a, in a destructive way. It's just more subtle than the explosive anger. But irritability is believing the same lie as when we have the outburst of anger. I'm entitled to no interruptions, no annoyances, uh, no inconveniences from my family or anyone else. No one has to bother me or get in the way of what I'm doing. And when these things characterize dad, all fathers are going to have some symptoms of these, but when this is his, what characterizes him in the home, he doesn't need to wonder why his kids are so quiet, defeated, and lacking motivation in life. He's living in James 4, 1 to 2. He's got his heart set on desires. He's living in the frustration of those desires going unmet, and then he's sinning in response to those not being met. One author put it this way, Hungry lusts produce angry hearts, and angry dads produce anger in their children. So that's one way. One sure way we can provoke our children to anger is modeling it ourselves. Secondly, the authoritarian dad. The authoritarian dad. So this is not to be confused with teaching his children that they are under authority, holding them to a standard, enforcing discipline and consequences when there's disobedience, No, all of those things are necessary components of faithful fatherhood. Rather, this is a dad characterized by heavy-handed, controlling leadership. Maybe there's rules for everything. To such a degree that there's no appropriate freedom in the home, no freedom to make any mistakes, no room for developing any kind of appropriate independence in the child even as they grow older. And so it becomes this suffocating leadership where there's dad micromanaging and controlling every single detail and decision in the child's life. And what happens? The child basically comes to associate dad with this heavy helicopter presence, hovering over them, suffocating them with every decision and and detail of their life. It could be that he's full of fear. It could be that he idolizes control. This dad often confuses his strong preferences with God's will, often giving his family the impression that there's no difference. Here's an example. When his daughters wear a dress, it has to be this many inches below the knee or it's of the devil. That'd be an example of confusing his his conscience, his strong preferences with God's will. Well, when children grow up under the authoritarian helicopter dad... It's going to provoke them to anger. Why? They're going to interpret that as abusive, unloving, unfair, especially as they compare themselves to other families in the church. When they go to dad and say, why do we have all these excessive rules, but other families in the church don't, they don't get wisdom. They don't go, they're not given passages and principles from Scripture to think through. What are they met with? They're given an explanation of his authority. I'm in charge. You're a child. It's my way or the highway. Smile and like it. And the older they get, the more they recognize dad led us out of his fears. Dad led us out of his preferences, not according to scripture. And that's going to frustrate them. The older they get, the further they're going to want to be away from dad. Thirdly, the anemic dad, the anemic dad. 
This dad is characterized by weak and passive leadership. So here's the authoritarian dad way over here. The anemic dad is all the way at the other end of the spectrum. This dad has not taught his children they're under authority. There's no structure. There's no standards, no rules in the home. His passive leadership has taught them you're always going to get your way and you only really need to obey dad if you can tell I'm really serious. And so in the rare cases where he does attempt to step in and lead, he'll resort to manipulation and human wisdom to coax his kids into compliance. What does that look like? He'll repeat himself over and over. Same instruction, one, two, three, four times to his kids. When they won't obey, he'll give them an ultimatum. If you, I'm going to count to three, and if you don't comply, then here's what's going to happen. In so doing, this dad unwittingly is conditioning his children to obey only when they feel like it, only when they're under the threat of severe punishment. Ruled by his own comfort and convenience, the anemic dad allows his family to rule over him and wear him down so he just gives in to whatever desires his wife has and whatever desires his children have. Why will that frustrate the children? Because they're not being taught a critical lesson in the home. Uh, You're not always going to get what you want. You have to submit to authority. Life is about coming under those who it won't always make sense. Life is about bending your preferences uh, to to the will of others. But the home becomes a place where all the individual family units seek their own desires and everyone's frustrated because they're not getting what they want. That's the result of an anemic dad. He's weak and passive. That leads to a fourth one, the abdicating dad. The abdicating dad. One way to provoke your children to anger, to leave them in this state of frustrated hopelessness, is to abdicate your role as a father. That is to say, a father who fails to accept his role and responsibility and allows God's design for the family to be reversed in the home. In other words, whether it's through his passivity or his wife's assertiveness, maybe even a combination of the two, he allows his wife to become the functional leader of the home. In some cases, it could even mean he abdicates his role as the provider in the home. After all, finances are tough. He's working so hard. He's barely able to pay the bills. The family's struggling paycheck to paycheck. And then he remembers his wife has this degree. She has this amazing marketable skill and she could easily go out, get a job, make double what he makes working the same hours. And so he comes to his wife and he says, I'll be the stay-at-home mom. You go out and work. We'll have so much more money. Life will be so much more comfortable. We could move into a nicer neighborhood, a nicer house and... The abdicating dad there is demonstrating he's ruled by convenience, not conviction. He's ruled by comfort. He's ruled by money, not God's design. Years down the road, when his children are out of control, when they want nothing to do with Christ and his church, he scratches his head and wonders why, but there's no need to wonder. You exasperated your children by, on the one hand, saying, it's all about the Lord. It's all about the Scriptures. You've got to obey God. It's all about God's design while you and mom completely flipped roles in the home. They had no first-hand examples to follow. Their primary influences were in rebellion against God. Of course that's going to be the fruit when they grow up. And so dad could do it in that. He could abdicate his role as the provider. And that's certainly not saying there aren't times when, when, when a wife or a mother has to work or anything like that. This is talking about a dad who wants to completely reverse roles. So it might be giving up his role as physical provider. It might be giving up his role probably more commonly as the spiritual leader in the home. Meaning his wife sets the spiritual tone of the home. She determines the spiritual direction of the family. She determines what church the family will attend, what commitment level they're going to have in that ministry. Any kind of spiritual instruction in the home, she's doing it with the kids because dad doesn't really have an appetite to do those things often hiding behind the excuse, I I don't know how to do it. I I don't have time. Well, when the kids grow up with mom leading the home in these ways, especially when dad's perfectly capable, there should be no surprise if the children are confused, hardened to the truth, frustrated, not responding to his leadership. 
Why? He gave up that role years ago. Fifthly, the arbitrary dad. The arbitrary dad. The dad of inconsistency. Could be inconsistency in emotions. One day he's the kindest and most gentle person to be around. The next day he's a completely different person. He's moody, angry, irritable, and the kids come to dad and they never know which version they're going to get. He's not a stabilizing influence in the home. He's adding to the instability and chaos of the home. This inconsistency would also apply to his standards for the children. Maybe the standards change on a regular basis or the enforcement of those standards change frequently. The children never quite know what to expect in dad's temperament, his standards, the enforcement. Well, that's going to lead to frustrated hopelessness. Sixthly, the artificial dad. The artificial dad. This is the dad of hypocrisy. He's spiritually artificial. This one shows up in demanding his kids, relentlessly demanding his kids obey Scripture while he himself is unwilling to do so. Like we talked about a few minutes ago with with anger, the, the dad who's characterized by outbursts of anger, he never owns those things, never really confesses those things and owns them in front of the family. But then if one of the kids screams and throws something across the room, oh, there are consequences and it is stern. That is rank hypocrisy. And the kids know it. The kids will recognize it. They may not be able to articulate it in the early years, uh, but, but they are recognizing, okay, dad gets the luxury of acting whatever way he does with no consequences, no genuine ownership of his sin, but when we do it, there's consequences. Boy, do we have to pay. Well, this artificiality also shows up in becoming a different person in the church when Christians are around. But let, let me qualify this one before we keep going. Because we have to recognize when we are out of our homes and in public gatherings like this, like Sunday mornings, we're all basically getting the best version of one another, right? We're not getting the worst version. Our family gets the unique privilege of that. We're getting the best version of ourselves. It doesn't mean we're hypocrites. It just means there's, there's more to us. <laughs> there's more to us that we all don't see because we can have the self-control to, to keep it together for a few hours when we're together. But when we're with our family, we get tired, we get hungry, our, our guard gets let down, and they see more of us. So that's not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is when you completely transform into a different person and you become almost unrecognizable. There's a massive discontinuity in who you are at home and who you are when you're around the people of God. You use language in the church that you don't use in the home. You give the impression that you do things in the church that you don't do, do at home. So this is really the dad of external religion, the dad of externals. Publicly, he, he's very skilled at cleaning the outside of his cup and the outside of his family cup. But in the home, there's no spiritual substance. There's no private striving. Seventh, the absent dad. The absent dad. Now, many different expressions of this one. It could be a dad who's just physically absent from the family. But this would not be due to providential factors outside of his control. You know, there are certain responsibilities that fathers have that do take them away more than they want to be away from their family. We certainly leave room for that, that uh, category. This is when it's in his control, and he might take a job he doesn't need so that he can hide behind having to work more or providing more when, in fact, those things aren't needed. So he takes a job that requires more travel, more hours, Does he find significance in work? Does he prefer to be away from the family? Maybe. I do know this. There have been many times when, especially as the kids were younger, when I'm on my way out the door and I'm looking forward to leaving because that's a hard job (laughs) for mom in the morning, right? And all day. I don't know about you dads, but when I'm home with the kids all day when mom is away, I am not in good shape when she gets back. So it can be easy. Easy to be like, all right, I'll see you in 10 hours. Uh, easy to go off and get lost in work and not come in and do that hard work that we're called to do in the home. And this is what dads do sometimes. We, we, we might hide behind finding other things to do, getting, getting busier than we need to be, 
in order to justify compromising in things that God has called us to. Now, it doesn't have to just be physically absent. It can be physically present, but distracted. So always giving the impression to the kids and the family that they're not a priority in the home. On your phone as they're trying to talk to you. And you're staring at your screen as they're talking to you. Well, that's what, what impression is that giving the kids? Or every time you have an opportunity to sit down with them, you find that project that you want to go do in the home. You find that, that, that activity that, that you've been wanting to do. There's always an excuse to get out of that intentional time with the children. That's the absent dad. An eighth one, the arrogant dad. The arrogant dad. The dad who never makes a mistake, never sins, at least in his eyes, never seeks forgiveness. When the children perceive such pride in their, in their dad and their parents, they may wrongly conclude, well, it's no use trying to talk to him. He'll never admit to doing anything wrong. He's not even a fellow sinner because he speaks down to them all the time with this condemning, how could you? What's wrong with you? The arrogant dad speaks first, listens second. That is to say, he always knows what happened. He always knows the details, even if he wasn't in the room. And he knows the motives of everyone's heart. And he treats them according to those things. The dad who assumes that his wife and his children's perspectives are always inferior to his. So it's just a dad who lives in the spirit of superiority in the home. That's going to exasperate the children. A ninth one. We've got two more dads, and then the pain will stop, temporarily at least. A ninth one, the agnostic dad. The agnostic dad, the dad with no convictions. He doesn't know what he believes. It's a dad of superficial convictions. Yeah, he affirms sound theology when someone asks him to sign a statement of faith or when they ask him, do you believe this? But, but for the most part, he's got no functional Bible knowledge. That theology that he professes to believe, it has no practical value, no, no practical difference in his life. He doesn't seem to be able to apply even the most basic Christian doctrines to various circumstances and pressures of family life. So what happens? The children are raised in a home where they're left without any clear answers about what the family is, the purpose of life, the gospel. Dad hasn't taught them about their conscience, guilt, how to respond to trials, how to deal with fear and anxiety. Why is that? Because he doesn't really know how to deal with those things. He can't really encourage with the truth. He can't exhort with the truth. He can't explain why we're living the way we're living. He's just sort of being carried along half by the current of the world and half by the current of the church. The agnostic dad. And then a tenth one, the achievement dad. The achievement dad, pushing his own goals on his children, academically, athletically, pushing them to be high achievers, often with unrealistic expectations. Perhaps so he can live vicariously through their accomplishments, or he can feed his sense of personal significance by having children who are, who are exceptional in something. What does this do? It gives the children, dad doesn't really love us or care for us. He loves himself and he's using us to get what he wants. He wants to pursue the glory of his own kingdom through our accomplishments. But dad often baptizes it. God gave you an ability, son, and we've got to make sure that we steward that, that ability. So the achievement dad pushes his own goals and his own dreams onto his children, which leads to a perpetual resentment toward him. All right, we took some extra time to go through those, and I'm aware of that, but that's not even close to an exhaustive list of the ways that we could frustrate and anger those under our leadership. But I wanted to take time to do that because we've got to recognize, although we would never intentionally produce that, lead in such a way that would produce that effect, there are a lot of things that we're vulnerable to, a lot of ways that we could just naturally lead our home. And they don't seem, some of those things don't seem wrong until you're considering the impact of them on the children. So that's the first mandate for fathers to faithfully exercise their God-given authority in the home, a harmful practice to be avoided. Do not provoke. Let's move on now very briefly to the second, a holy purpose to be pursued. 
a holy purpose to be pursued. Second half of, of Ephesians 6, verse 4. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, you see how these commands relate to each other? Let's put the negative and positive commands together see how they relate. Don't provoke to anger. Don't bring them down, second half. But, in strong contrast, bring them up. In other words, the pathway to provoking children to anger is missing the second part of verse 4. Instead of exasperating your children, bring them up. Now, that word for bring them up, it's only used one other time, and it's right over in Ephesians 5.29. Take a look at it. Ephesians 5.29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes, there's our word, nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. So what's the meaning there? Everyone instinctively supplies their own bodies with what is necessary for life and growth. And in a spiritual sense, that's what Christ does for the church. All right, so take that idea back into chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, nourish them. Bring them up. Your leadership is to promote their growth unto, unto maturity. You're to care for them and supply them with whatever they need for their development. But that raises an obvious question, how? And not every human father knows or is going to agree on what's best for my children. How are we to bring them up? In what way? What method? What curriculum do I use? Well, Paul's very clear. He gives two aspects of this in the rest of verse 4. In the discipline and instruction of the Lord. First, that word discipline. We might hear that and think, okay, that's talking about physical consequences for disobedience. Well, it includes that, but it's much broader than that. This is a word that's probably better captured in a translation which says training, training. In fact, Paul uses this word only one other time. I'll just read it for you. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training. In righteousness, there's the word, for discipline in righteousness. All right, so this word back in Ephesians 6, 4, it can be interchanged with training. Training is about the development of habits, thoughts, and behaviors in a child. What does that look like practically? Well, some of our home groups recently went through the Christian home by Paul Shirley. He's got a very helpful section in there, a very practical section on what this looks like. I'll just borrow a few of his, his examples here. What does this training look like? Train a child for self-control. How to sit still, be quiet, to wait patiently. Train a child to be thankful instead of focusing on what you don't have, what you didn't get. Focus on things you can be thankful for. Fill your language with gratitude, not complaining. Train a child to be submissive. You, you can't get up from the table. You can't run around the house. You have to look this person in the eye when they talk to you. You have to respond when an adult asks you how you're doing. Train them to be submissive. Train a child for endurance. You've got to trust and obey when it's hard, when you're tired, when you're hungry. You can't blame disobedience on external circumstances. Train a child to trust the Lord. Address fears, unreasonable fears, without coddling anxiety. Train a child to prefer others. Think of the good of others above yourself. Train a child to crucify the flesh. You don't get what you want when you want. That's not how life works. You've got to have control over your internal desires. You can't have them ruling you. Train a child to love the church. Consistent attendance, involvement, commitment, teaching them how vital the local church is in their spiritual life. Train them on the principle of corrective discipline. What, do, what are we teaching them? Sin leads to suffering. Sin leads to suffering. Sin has painful consequences. So train them up. Train up a child in the way of the Lord. But also notice verse 4. And the instruction. And the instruction of the Lord. Now that's a compound word. To put mind. To put into the mind. So it's not unrelated to the first term. You, you can't really separate these terms from one another. They both involve teaching and training. This second term puts a greater emphasis on one particular aspect of that training, 
our instruction, our speech to them. It is our influence, particularly upon their thinking, encouraging, warning, and everything in between. Now, a dad might hear this and say, yeah, I'm doing this. I've always done this because every day I get my family together and I instruct them. I I read scripture to them. We, We read through the Bible constantly. I'm constantly exposing my family to the word of God. And I would say, that's great. You're ahead of the curve in many ways in that practice. That's a good thing that your family knows what the Bible says, but we have to be careful we don't equate exposure to the Word of God with the type of instruction that Paul's talking about right here. Let me illustrate that. Imagine if any given pastor comes up on a Sunday morning behind this pulpit and the sermon consists merely of just reading Scripture. We just read Scripture for 50 minutes and then we close in prayer. Have we been faithful? Well, on the one hand, we gave you the Word of God. Not our wisdom, not our opinions. You're going to have a biblical familiarity as a result of sitting under a ministry that just comes up every Sunday morning and reads the Word of God to you. But on the other hand, it's insufficient. We haven't actually done what God has called us to do if we're merely reading Scripture. What are we called to do? To preach the Word, but then Paul adds those modifiers. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching, 2 Timothy 4.2. So we have to be able to explain what the Word of God means by what it says and then apply the implications of that meaning to the people. That's what we do as preachers. Well, that's what Dad has to do in the home. Not saying he gets up behind a pulpit and does it. I'm saying he has, he has to not only expose his family to the Word of God, he's got to make sure they understand it and its implications for their lives. He has to admonish his children, unto obedience. What does that mean? Dad has to understand. Dad has to be able to teach. And you say, I can't teach. I can't explain. I can't encourage. I can't exert. I I don't have that gifting. I don't have that ability. Well, there's only two possibilities, if that's true, if you're someone saying that. First, you're not married and you don't have kids. There's the first possibility. Secondly, you're being disobedient and you're rationalizing your disobedience. If God gave you a family, he's going to give you the grace to be faithful to what he's called you to do in your family. To influence them with his truth. By the way, that's what makes Christian fatherhood unique. Right? We overlap with a lot of things that the world does and what the world considers good fatherhood. But what makes it unique there is the end of that, end of verse 4, that phrase, of the Lord. Of the Lord, not of mom, not of dad, not of the world, not of your feelings, not of your wisdom, but rather your training and instruction is of the Lord. So we're not leading in such a way where we're merely producing good manners, good behavior, hardworking, honest, respectful, responsible adults. That's just assumed. Worldly fathers can do that. Christian fatherhood rises above that. It operates in a different sphere, a different arena. All training and instruction is to be done with the Lord as a reference point. What does that mean? It proceeds from him. It's determined by his authority, regulated by his means, his methods, his goals, his content. In other words, it's truly Christian instruction with the gospel of Christ Jesus at the very core. This is God's priority for Christian fathers. We have a harmful practice to be avoided and a holy purpose to be pursued. And on Father's Day, it is fitting. It's fitting for the fathers among us to be exhorted in these areas and to engage in sober reflection on how we are leading in our homes. There's no dad among us this morning who doesn't have many ways he can grow as a father. But we've talked enough about dad this morning, so I want to end just with a very brief word to mothers and children this morning as it relates to this passage. Here's why I'm doing this. Any message on marriage or parenting in the church is an occasion for some conflict on the way home, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, yes. 
or later on this week as you've had time to go through your notes and process what we've talked about this morning. And that's not helpful. It's not edifying to, to hear a sermon and have, co- have conflict about the content. That's not helpful. But it's so easy to do, <laughs> isn't it? So I want to equip you with some principles to profitably interact about the content this morning. These will be very brief. Here we go. Wives, come alongside your husband. Kids, come alongside your father and begin by encouraging him where you see him striving. Encouraging him, here's where I see God's, God's work. Here's some areas you, you are strong in. Here, here's where we really appreciate you that you're doing well. He needs that because he's feeling about this small right now. He, he needs your encouragement, okay? And for areas that you do have a concern about with your father, this template will be helpful for you. After you've encouraged him, ask him, was there anything you heard this morning that was hard to hear? Was there anything you heard that was convicting? Was there any, anything you heard in that message that, that you realized you need to grow in and work harder in? And then, Dad, you have the humility to go to your family and you ask them, as you heard what dads are called to from Ephesians 6, 4, what areas do you think I need to grow in? What areas? I don't want 20. Just give me one or two areas you think I'm the most vulnerable in or weak in and, and give me those. And as you're interacting about these issues, here's the governing principle on your interaction. Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome word, no condemning word, no word to tear down without hope, no word to exact revenge, no word to make, feel, make someone feel pain for no reason. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth but only such as a word is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it'll give grace to those who hear. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how it clearly reveals our priorities as parents. Amidst all of the confusion that abounds today, a passage like this really simplifies our parenting. It doesn't make it easy, but it does simplify it. So help us to do the the hard work by your spirit of putting to death ungodly tendencies in our leadership that will produce exasperation in our children. Help us to do the hard work by your spirit to prioritize and pursue the holy purpose of parenting, to bring up our children in the training and instruction of the Lord. The last thing we want to do is get in the way of your design for family life. So give us hearts that would be convinced of these things and willing to live them out no matter the cost. In Christ's name we ask, amen.